Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, empowering filmmaking entrepreneurs. Hey, welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. Yes, this is the podcast where we empower you, the filmmaking entrepreneur. And a great way to get started is to get the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion while doing it. It's available in paperback, Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. And in fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. That's survivetheimplosion.com. Hey everyone, this is Scott McMahon, your fellow film trooper. And this episode, um, you're going to listen to Ron Newcomb, the indie film coach over at indiefilmcoach.com, as he interviews Jonathan Wolf, who is the managing director of the American film market, as well as the executive vice president over at the Independent Film and Television Alliance. Now, the American film market is essentially... Uh, the largest film market here in the United States, because you probably have heard about the Cannes Film Festival, but there's also the Cannes Film Market, as well as the uh, film market in Berlin and uh, Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, the same buyers and sellers of film, of the international film market, uh, go to all these uh, events, all these marketplaces and uh, these market events. And this is the biggest one here uh, in the United States. And so you'll be able to hear from Jonathan Wolf. Um, what's it like to try to sell your film at the American film market or how to have a successful um, progress in your career and in your, in the films that you're working on at the American film market. Now, it's not for everybody, you know, but this is re- really where the independent world of film is bought and sold at these markets. Um, you've, if you're a fan of Film Trooper, you know that I, I try to explore other avenues that go outside of the marketplace um, that's outside of the Hollywood system or even the indie Hollywood system, which is the, you know, the international film market here. But it's also good to know that if you decide to go down this path, you might find success. If you listen to some past episodes of mine, you've heard me um, interview my friend Kelsey Tucker, who took my advice and took her particular project down to the American film market and had a very successful uh, meetings and got her film up and running and made with name stars such as Thor Birch and Chris Klein. So without further ado, here is the uh, interview with Jonathan Wolf run by my friend and our friend um, Ron Newcomb at the IndieFilmCoach.com, all here at the Film Trooper Podcast. All right, today we have with us uh, Jonathan Wolf from the American Film Market. And uh, just to kind of dive in a little bit, uh, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about kind of your, your filmmaking backstory, how you got into AFM, and then if you could just kind of roll into for the film troopers that don't know what AFM is, exactly what is AFM? Sure. Well, uh, my background is on the finance side of the industry. Uh, I grew up at uh, CBS and one of the large uh, independents in the late 80s, New World Entertainment, is chief financial officer of their international operations. And at the same time, I was uh, active in the parent organization of the American film market, which is the Independent Film and Television Alliance. It's a nonprofit trade group. That, um, that serves the global film industry. And um, I was on the board for a while and the board decided that uh, uh, it would, wanted me in that role of running the show and it just turned out to be, uh, to be a good match and I've been doing it for quite a while now. Um, uh, so my, my perspective is from the finance and the distribution side of the industry rather than the creative and the production side. What I know about filmmaking probably could be uh, Summarize in one sentence, stand behind the camera. <laughs> nice. Uh, 
but but I have a, a good macro view of what it takes to get films made, um, and I have a deep appreciation for those that that fight and sacrifice and have that true passion uh, to see their story on screen. Um, looking at the AFM, uh, the AFM simply is a marketplace for those um, who want to license or finance films. The AFM is different from a festival. Festivals are cultural events uh, for their communities. There are, I believe, about 1,700 festivals worldwide that have been around for at least seven years or more. Um, where we are here in Los Angeles, there are more than 50 festivals in LA County alone. And, wow. and these are all cultural events for the community. The FM is a trade show, um, and meaning that the, the people who are coming to the market, notice we call the market not a festival, the people who are coming to the market are coming there to buy something or to sell something, to pitch something or to acquire something, to connect and ultimately um, 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 create commerce. Uh, and we can, we can break our participants really into three segments. Um, we have what we refer to as sales companies, um, distribution companies, those who have films and projects in any stage of development or production and are looking for territorial buyers or licensors to acquire those films, to push those films out through every uh, village, hamlet, and borough in the world. Then you have those territorial buyers who are coming from all over the world, licensing, acquiring rights to films in every stage of development production for every media, from theaters to Blu-ray to every online platform to, to all, foreign, all screens big and small. And then you have the production community um, led by producers, then writers, then film commissioners, post-production facilities, financiers, agents, lawyers, all those who are involved in bringing films forward, packaging films, and getting films greenlit. Uh, the group that you don't see at the AFM are those who are essentially hired, meaning cinematographers, hmm. actors, directors who aren't attached to a film in its pre-production state and are part of the pitch of that. Hmm. We would tell most directors, for example, don't come to AFM unless it's a script you wrote and you're pitching the script or you are packaged with the producer and you're part of the sales process. Um, and so the AFM is about, is about everyone who's, who's bringing films forward, packaging it, getting it financed versus those who are, are looking for work. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great summary. Back in 2009, I was fortunate enough to be able to go out there. I had a feature film that I was pitching, so I got to see it kind of firsthand uh, play out. Can you elaborate a little bit? Because I do think them, there are some misnomers of the differentiating factor between the festival and the market. Like what are the markets out there also that, that people um, might be aware of? Well, there are three major markets. Um, I'm doing them alphabetically, there's the American film market, which is in Holly's backyard in November. Then in February in Berlin, you have the European film market that is held concurrently with the Berlin Film Festival. And then in May, you have uh, the Cannes market or Marché du Film, which is held in Cannes concurrent with the Cannes Festival. So the other two major markets um, have a festival, I won't say component, but have a mm -hmm. festival partner or a festival side by side. If you look at Cannes, probably half the people in Cannes during the festival are there for the market, and about half there are there 
for the festival. The programs are completely different. Um, the festival badges won't get you into market screenings, for example. Um, um, and so it's com two completely different teams um, and people there for very, very uh, different reasons. Uh, at AFM, we're unique in that we don't have a festival. A lot of our participants like that because it doesn't create the clutter and the noise um, that a festival can create when you're trying to do business. Yeah. Uh, and it allows those who are promoting films that are ready to be sold to actually get some traction with their with their messaging, um, and so that that's that's a huge difference. There's also a smaller market in Hong Kong in March called Hong Kong Film Art, but it's only three and a half days, and they do very little screening there. But it's a great regional um, um, event. Yeah, so I'm sure you guys have have thought about the the festival route and it sounds like you guys are did not go that way or are not going to go that way also in the future because this does feel like a, a a business venture where you're going to go to do the business side of filmmaking is that accurate yeah and i'll carry it farther the can market and the european film market grew out of the festivals hmm. uh, their respective festivals the festival started much earlier business people were there to promote the films then deals started getting done in hotel lobbies and bars. And then the organizers of the festivals realized that they could create a more structured marketplace and frankly, some revenue by doing that to help support the festival. So the markets grew up after the festivals. Um, the AFM started purely as a market. Mm. And the concept of us then going ahead and starting a festival um, uh, when 70% of the world's festivals are in North America. Right. Uh, and like I said, more than 50 in LA County alone to get the traction of a Telluride, a Sundance, um, uh, a South by Southwest, a Tribeca, and get the brand and get the respect uh, is a fool's errand. Yeah, no, and it is a, is a huge lift. And I, I appreciate when I went to, it felt very, you knew why you were there. Now, for people that aren't familiar with it, the week is kind of broken down to kind of like a front-end week and a back-end week. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? And maybe sure. if, if I'm an indie filmmaker, which, you know, how should I navigate that? Sure. The market's seven uh, full days long, and the, the last day is as busy as, as the first. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned this. When, when the show opens, Let's talk about the, the environment first, because I think that will help. The American film market is held in a hotel, the Low Santa Monica Beach Hotel. Um, it's a 350-room hotel that closes for two weeks. We move all of the furniture out of all of the rooms, and the rooms become offices for production distribution companies. So we refer to our exhibit space not as booths, but as offices, because this is where everyone is meeting. Um, and and when the show opens, the companies who are in the offices, larger companies like Studio Canal or Lakeshore or Lionsgate or Sierra Affinity or Exclusive Media, um, these companies initially have their schedules filled, meeting with territorial buyers to license and pitch to them the films that they have set up and brought to the market. The majority, maybe 50 to 60%, of that business that they're talking about is on films that haven't started shooting yet. Hmm. Pre-sales, what we call pre-sales, mm -hmm. where they're licensing the films before they've been shot 
it both tr helps transfer the risk on the production as well as help raise production financing. And then maybe uh, 35 to 45% of, of the business is done on films that are screening at the market. But it's the same thing. These companies want to meet first and foremost with the territorial buyers and start to set deals on films that they've been working for months, maybe even years to get set up. Later, as the market moves along into Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, um, their schedule starts to lighten up and they will have an interest in new projects because they have to find projects from somewhere. Distributors are like oil pipelines. They can't have an empty pipeline. And so they want to have the meetings um, with potential filmmakers, but they want to first sell what they brought to the market. Right. And so we actually have two credentials for, at the market. One begins on Wednesday and the other begins on Saturday. Uh, and we encourage producers and writers who have projects um, um, who are in development, um, don't come till Saturday. Buy the less expensive credential. You'll get more traction. You don't need to travel for seven days. You can travel and be at the market for four days and get a lot of value in that four days. For those with finished films, we'll encourage them to be there from the first day. They've got mm -hmm. such a huge investment in the film. They may not be busy every day. They may have downtime. But uh, once that investment is made in the finished film and they're trying to shop it, um, they should try and be there as much of the market um, as they can. So in the later part of the market, um, uh, there's more receptiveness. Not, not all companies are having acquisition meetings, but quite you know the, the majority are. We also don't start our, our conferences and roundtables until Friday. Um, and then they run full time all the way through Tuesday. We'll have this year 23 or 24 sessions, uh, 120 or so speakers, but it, it doesn't even begin till the third day. Um, our networking receptions don't start until the third day. So, so arriving on day four um, or arriving in the evening on day three um, is, is just fine. Yeah, no, that's definitely what I experienced because I did have a finished film. I did go for the full amount. And, you know, my goal was to try to get as many uh, meetings as I could. And I tried to set them up beforehand. And the website does a good job of that, allowing me to kind of reach out and, and you know, kind of hit or miss a little bit. Um, so let me talk a little bit about uh, why someone will attend AFM and specifically curtailing what their goal should be. Because a lot of times I hear filmmakers going there with the objective of, you know, a false expectation of getting a check at, uh, you know, come Tuesday when they fly home. And that is just not accurate. Can you can you right. speak truth to that of, of what the goal should be for us? Sure. Well, you know, a prof sales is the highest paid profession in the world, more than doctors, more than lawyers. When you look globally to everybody in sales. It's the highest paid profession. And there is a reason. It's it's difficult. It is a skill set. And its value is dismissed by most of us. Hmm. Most of us feel, well, all you did was show me this, or whether it's it's the woman behind the cosmetics counter or the guy selling jumbo jets. Yeah. The salesman's role is is always diminished and people don't understand the value. Those who run businesses do. And frequently we find that, that filmmakers, they fall victim to a disease. Um, um, that disease is, is believing in the theory of transferable expertise. <laughs> I am an expert in one thing, therefore I am an expert in all things. 
I wrote this film, I'm going to direct the film or produce the film, and therefore I and only I can sell the film. I can tell you when it comes to cars, nobody who sells a car ever designed it. When it, when it comes to almost everything out there that is being sold, the salesman had very little um, um, uh, impact in what that product was. Sure, the, ma the, the manufacturing and marketing departments want feedback from the salesman because they're on the ground and they're hearing the customer, but ultimately they have very little to do with it. That means that they're able to emotionally detach. What we find, and I write this on our website, we tell producers, if you're madly, deeply in love with your film, if your film is your firstborn and coming to the AFM is its first day of school, get someone else to pitch the film. Because ultimately, you'll, you'll, you'll convince the listener of, of how much you love the film, like you love your firstborn, but you won't do a very good job connecting with them and selling it and using a salesman's technique. But that said, we do a poll when we, the producers come to the market. I do some orientations. 80 to 90% of the producers there are, are, are creative producers. Um, and so they're there to sell their film. And what we then have to do is really give them the ABCs of sales. And some of those ABCs are the goal of each connection is to get to the next step. Sales is like a funnel. You start with 100 first contacts. You, you funnel that down to 50 second contacts, to 23rd contacts, to finally you get all the way down the funnel and you have, you have a deal. And a salesman is emotionally ready for lots and lots of closed doors. And a salesman knows, <laughs> first and foremost, how to qualify a prospect. Let me give you an example. Um, if you've ever, I'm, I used cars before, so I'll use that example again. Have you ever walked onto a car lot, have a salesman come up to you and say, without asking your name, who you are, or anything about you, I have the perfect car for you. It's red, it's four-door, it's a stick shift, it's got this kind of engine, it's got this kind of package, and that's the car for you. Yeah, no, no. The salesman asks as much as he can about you for two reasons. One to see if you're a qualified prospect, meaning does he have something for you and can you afford to buy what he's got? Second, if you get over that step, that he can tailor his pitch for what it is you're looking for. Um, oh, I've got just the car that meets your needs. Or, sorry you don't have any dough and your parents won't give you anything. When they do, come back and see me <laughs> and you cut it off. I can't tell you how many times I will walk through the offices and have interns who are there to schedule meetings and they tell me they just heard five pitches. Right. Why would any salesman waste their time? But there are a lot of producers who take this view of what they used to call in, in I don't know, World War II, leafleting. We're gonna go over a mm -hmm. country, we're just gonna drop leaflets out the window and that'll get our message out there. Um, they feel just like spammers today. If I send out, if I just talk to everybody over and over a broken record, somebody like magic, like fairy dust, that intern is really going to actually touch somebody who's going to touch somebody. Doesn't happen. The professional salesman says, hey, what do you do? I'm the intern. Great. Who makes the decisions? Who hears pitches? When are they available? Then there's the second part. What kind of films do you look for? Do you finance in pre-production? Do you have development dough? 
um, what kind of language, what budgets, what genres. Um, the salesman doesn't want to waste their time because for the salesman, the most valuable asset they have is their time. And they want to use their time as efficiently as possible. But over and over, I give orientations. I can't tell you how many people come up to me and want to tell me about their project. Why? Okay, I'm glad you like what I had to say and the things I could help you do. Now get out of Dodge. Go right. talk to somebody that matters. I don't matter. Why are you telling me about your film? The intern doesn't matter. And don't try and rehearse your script on the intern because their feedback is worthless. <laughs> what they think doesn't matter. And so so coming back to what what the creator producer has to expect at the market first is you have to expect that you're going to put on a salesperson's hat. Forget that you're a creator producer. Um, second, recognize that if you're a producer and you want to produce this film, you're pitching two things. You're pitching the project, but also yourself, because the commitment to the project is also commitment to work with you. How professional are you? How buttoned down are you? Um, um, how focused are you? You know, um, and so what, a lot of times what happens is the creative producer, who could probably be pretty good on the set, is such a lousy pitcher, they come across poorly because they've stepped into a process that they don't know. And all of us, all of us are really, really smart in some places and really, really dumb in others. Just depends on where we're standing at the moment. And the thing is for the producer is make sure you're standing in an area that you're real smart. And if you're not, you know, step aside and get someone else to do it. Producers essentially create small businesses for a short period of time. They hire directors, they hire cinematographers, they hire actors. They will spend a lot of time in a screening room or, 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 um, or on their computer watching scenes of different sec set designers or, or, or others or actors to decide who they want. But they do no work at all in trying to hire somebody to help sell or pitch. They all of a sudden say, that's my job. They don't run onto the set and tell, and tell the, the person doing costumes that's the wrong shirt for that actor. They don't walk on the set and try and change the blocking for the director. But when it comes to selling the package, oh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and that's, that's the mistake that we say over and over and over. Um, uh, and that's why those who are salesmen producers um, can be so successful, first, because there's so few of them, and second, because they know how to, how to, uh, how to focus their time. Yeah, so no. in, in terms of what to do at the AFM, it's, it's expect the experience of a salesman, not the experience of an artist. That is, that is great wisdom. And you pulled this in. You had an invite for new filmmakers and the orientation you, you spoke of. And so I went to this orientation and it was packed. I was, you know, pleasantly surprised how many filmmakers there and there were networking events and opportunities, but you never become more introverted than when you're there. You know, you're trying not to be and you know you need to network, but suddenly you find yourself introverted. And you, and you said uh, a lot of wisdom in that meeting and it was a summation of basically of what you just said is that most of you are creative producers and there's a few of you who are sales producers and you asked us to kind of raise hands and it was about an 80-20 split and then about two hours later we had a networking event and sure enough the, those 20% of sales producers all the creatives were around them you know throwing business cards at them and it is a team approach I, you know and and when you get in front of someone 
that can hear a pitch, you never feel it more that you wish you had a sales producing ally than at that moment in time. So no, I, I heed your advice and, and took it then and I, I still like to hear it now. I think it's important. Just to add to that, and I, I covered this in the event you're talking about, I, I, I believe that there are really three types of producers. There's the creative producer we just talked about that really understands story development, working with the writers and how to connect with the audience. There's what we'll call the salesman producer who knows where the financing is, knows which studios, which independents want what kind of project, knows how to work with the agencies. You know, they, they could sell cars or they could sell boats, but they just happen to be selling film. You know, they walk the walk, talk the talk. And then you have the line producer, like the general contractor. When the film's financed and it's ready to go, they know how to get it done. They know how to work with unions and location scouts and budgets and UPMs and, and make all of that happen. And, and there are many, many experts in each of those disciplines. There are a few experts in two of those disciplines. I've never met someone who's an expert in all three. And this is where we come back to the, to the, uh, the producer as, as business person in creating a business. The best producers build teams. Most of the top producers you see are partnerships or teams uh, where they share some of those, those um, um, skills. Now, sometimes they're both creative and both sales, but if one's created, the other sells it and, and vice versa. So that, that the person who's overly passionate, maybe they have a back seat to the person who, who can just dispassionately sell because ultimately that salesperson knows how to connect with the customer. That's the first thing they have to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so while you've been there for, for quite some time, and of course the landscape is always changing, uh, you mentioned pre-sales briefly, and a lot of us indies know about that, or actually we, we've heard about that, but don't necessarily know all the intricacies of pre-sales. Can you talk a little bit about what type of deals that you're seeing? And then um, pre-sales, of course, are related to star power, how much that affects uh, a deal in, in 2017. All right, let me just uh, do a quick surface skim on what pre-sales are. You, you put together a package, the film has a budget, it has a director, um, it has its cast, it's ready to go. You've come to a market like the AFM, a sales company who's experienced in international distribution, not you as a producer, but one of the 350 or so companies with an office at the AFM, is then meeting with territorial buyers to encourage them to buy the film sight unseen before it's made. Now, the buyers are interested in pre-buying the film for a couple reasons. One, it assures that they have content for their distribution platform, whether it's theaters or Blu-ray or VOD or, or a, a, a TV network, they need content. And this assures them that they're getting the content. The second is because they're taking on additional risk, the film has not been seen yet, hasn't even made yet, the pricing reflects that risk transfer. The fact that, that, that the producer is now selling it. When the film is done, crap, the film might be really, really good and I might be charged double for it. It might be bad and I might be able to get it for less. But ultimately as a buyer, I'm able to acquire it at a competitive price. So I'm interested in pre-buying uh, for those reasons. The sales company and the producer are interested in, in selling it for two, for two or three reasons. One, they raise production financing. If a company has pre-bought your film, 
that contract, that promise to pay can be taken to one of the entertainment lenders, the banks here, and usually you can borrow against it assuming that that, that buyer uh, has a good credit record. Um, the second is you've transferred risk. There are a lot of companies who will say, I'll sell half the world and I'll keep half the world. I'm willing to risk half the, half the budget. Mm-hmm. I want some upside, um, um, but I can't risk all of it. So mm-hmm. basically looking at, at you know, the risk sensitivity of all of those involved, the equity, the players, you transfer risk. But the third, which frequently gets overlooked, the reason you pre-sell, is you get marketplace pre-acceptance. Hmm. We've all heard this phrase, a film that should have never been made. I can promise you that none of those films, or almost none, were ever pre-sold at a market. You bring a film to market, and look, most of the guys selling and women selling films at the AFM, they're pretty experienced. They know what works in the marketplace. They spent some time putting packages together, working with the producer, getting the equity and the soft money and the other, what other, whatever other elements are necessary. So most of the films brought to the market for pre-selling get sold, but there's some that don't. And at some point, you walk away from the table. You say, look, we brought the film forward, we pitched the world, and almost nobody wanted it. What we thought would be interesting, the world said no to. Hmm. And so, yes, you as a producer can go back and start over and raise all the money privately through equity and good luck, but the world said this is something we're not interested in. In all other industries, I don't know, look at shoes. Tommy, Tommy, I'm sorry, what's, who's the big shoe, the, the shoe guy? Uh, um, Tommy Chu? Yeah, right, right, yeah. Okay, they'll make samples of shoes. They'll show them to all the big retailers. Not every sample ever goes into production. Hmm. The shoemaker or the sweater maker or the suit maker doesn't say, oh my God, they didn't like my design. They shrug it off, say that's what it is, and they go back and design other things. And they never go into production. The great advantage of pre-selling is like bringing samples to retailers, having them pick what they want, and you didn't end up making you know, tens of thousands of shoes that nobody ended up, ended up wanting. Almost all other industries are able to test the marketplace and walk away from products and services that the marketplace doesn't want. The problem we have in film is we have not just business people, we have artists. And the artists want to create their art regardless of what the marketplace says. Um, and that's where, that's where we, we run into conflict. <laughs> we run into statements of the system is rigged. Um, um, and all the other phrases that we've all heard when the artist's work isn't accepted by the marketplace. You know, you look at, you look at other forms of art, let's take painting. There's some people that paint in their, just for themselves and their family and they give their, their paintings away. Some paint and they go to the, the Sunday afternoon fairs at the park and they sell their work and maybe it's their primary source of income, maybe it's an add-on. And then we have some that are at such a top level, their paintings are in, in galleries. But, but because they can afford their canvas um, and they have, most of them have a realistic view of where they fit in the marketplace, they just sort of accept where, what that result is. Um, when it comes to the filmmaker, the complexity of making the film and the collaborative process of having that, bring that film forward, there's an expectation, almost a sense of entitlement um, um, to an audience. The problem is, and this is one of the things you heard me say, 
across all art forms and all artists in all disciplines, most art is bad. We don't see the finger paints of the four-year-old. We don't see the 12-year-old the, the or the 80-year-old painting things for the family. The family says, thanks for the painting, and then it goes in a closet. Um, there's a vetting process for most art uh, that we as consumers, we get to see the best of the best. But when it comes to film, by the time that film is made, there's a, a sense of all filmmakers that what they've made is good <laughs> and it deserves an audience and deserves a broad audience who's willing to pay for the privilege of viewing that art uh, and pay so much that the filmmaker can recoup their investment. Well, it might, you might have a better chance, of course, when you have $5 worth of oil on canvas. Um, but when you have $500,000 or $5 million in a film, um, recoupment then becomes much tougher. So the, I'm coming back to marketplace pre-acceptance. The great advantage, even for a producer who has raised all of their production financing, they can go make their film. I will tell them, find a sales company, connect with them, take your film to a market. You're going to get two benefits. One is that sales company knows the marketplace. They may tell you, move some of your budget from special effects to cast. That'll make it more valuable. You may not want to take their advice, but at least you'll hear the view of someone who faces the marketplace and faces the consumer. Second is they're going to bring that film to market. And if they come back to you and say, nobody wanted it, you shouldn't be unhappy. You should jump up and down and say, I just saved a fortune. <laughs> by not pursuing that pair of shoes that none of the retailers wanted. Yeah, and probably five to seven years of, of one's life and heartache and family and friends. But money they've already got five years in and writing the script and rewriting the script and raising the dough, then there's a sense of, I don't want to walk away from it. Yeah. And a lot of artists will say, I don't care about the business. It's a showcase piece to me. And sometimes they're not completely honest with those who they raised the money from. You know, one of the things I'll tell most producers, if a director comes to you with a script, gives you a pitch and you find it sort of interesting, the first thing you ask the director is, who's the film for? Hmm. Now, if the director says 17 to 24-year-old girls or, you know, or 15 to 35-year-old guys, you know, whatever it is, okay, he's got a target audience. Say, great. If the director says, it's for me, <laughs> run. <laughs> Red alert. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so how about star power is, is, you know, we talk about packaging a deal and star power, how it's kind of changing a little bit with the foreign market. At least this is what I'm, I'm hearing the murmurs that kind of trickle down to me. What do you say to, to that, the star power factor? Well, look, first and foremost, if you have talent, talent gets film made, you know, would monster have been made without Charlize Theron? Right. You know, um, um, talent will get a film made. So that's an element. Great stories get films made. How many films have we seen that have been terrific with actors we may not have, have recognized? Um, that it, it really all comes down to, to marketability. And having talent attached sometimes is the easiest way. You know, one of the things that we'll tell, we'll tell writers who say, I want to write something I can sell. No, so they're immediately they're facing the audience, not facing their own sense of art. What we'll tell them is write a great story with a, a big lead character. Like Monster, it's an easy example. 
the, everybody else is supportive. Um, actors love to work. Actors love roles that they can just own. You write a great role for an actor or an actress. Um, um, the story can be good, doesn't have to be great. And the actor sees, boy, I'm in every scene. I've got half the dialogue. Then you tend, to, you may find those actors who said, this is the piece, this is my passion project. Like Charlize did, I will work for scale and I'll take the back end. I can just, I can just invest myself in this. Yeah, I've got a month and a half free. I'm going to be at home watching TV or I'm going to do this. Um, so if you're, if your goal, if you have no dough, you don't know where to start, you've got some story ideas, rework the story so that there's a single strong lead. Um, and, and that you have a better chance, again, I, you know, it depends on the story, of course, you have a better chance of attracting an actor who then becomes attached. And then that helps your film to get some notoriety. Of course, the salesman selling cars he says, are you giving me a stripped down car? Are you giving me a car with every bell and whistle on it? The, the more you give me in that car, the easier it is for me to sell. So mm -hmm. that becomes an asset. But there are other assets too. Production incentives. I'm shooting in this state or this country and I've got 30% of the budget. And this is why the film works shooting there. Um, we can shoot East London for New York. Okay. And I can get this and that credit. I'm just making this up. But the yeah, concept yeah. is the producer's done their work and they've said, I've got this actor and I can cover 30% of the budget through the incentives. And we should be able to pre-sell these four countries because of this and that. And suddenly the equity needed, the risk capital keeps dropping. And, and because even the actor taking, you know, Char Charlize Theron did monster, risk transferred from the producer to her. When, when Tom Cruise does Mission Impossible and gets paid tens of millions of dollars. Risk is transferring from the from Tom Cruise to the studio, uh, the person who's paying him. When we look at every deal in the industry, you always want to look at, at, at who's taking on risk and who's giving it up. So as the producer packaging a film can offload risk, whether it's the production incentive, I've offloaded it to the state or the country I'm shooting, or an actor who's agreed to work for, for a back end, or others who've worked on deferrals, I'm starting to transfer risk. Um, um, that that helps move the project along. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And then of course, star power can also mean um, attaching a director, of course, or the right producer, or any name that is has some ability to kind of move it down, move the needle a little a little bit. I would imagine. Whatever is going to motivate someone to take on risk, whether it's the territorial buyer buying the film, the equity investor coming in and saying, I'm willing to do this. Other resources, you, you mentioned a uh, director. You have a certain uh, actor that says, I'll, I'll do this uh, for some deferrals or scale. Then a director comes in and says, boy, if that actor is there, mm -hmm. I'd love to direct that actor. And so the building blocks you know, start, start to come together. Yeah. Yeah, it's never easy, but it does start to, to come together, as you say. Um, what can I do as a film trooper? I'm getting ready to go to AFM. What can I do prior to AFM? And then if I do have a project, what materials should I be bringing with me? If, if, if the project is a script, and let's, let's be clear, and you've heard me say this before, a writer without a script is still a writer, and an actor without a script is still an actor, but a producer without a script is nobody. Um, uh, if you have 
if you have a script um, and if it's fully developed, um, uh, we have a page on, our, on the AFM website, how to work the AFM, um, read that. But what it basically says is do your homework and, and determine who your key prospects are. There are 350 companies that have offices there. There are probably a, a thousand production companies who are just walking around. Do your homework as to who you want to connect with. Find out who the individuals are. Write to them. You know, don't do proofs of concept. Don't go out and shoot shorts to say, here's what we can do. You know, um, uh, don't pitch first-time directors. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people who want to hear that story today. Um, if you're the writer who hopes to direct it, sell the script first. Let them know later once they're hooked. You know, it's like fishing. <laughs> don't pull the line in so early. Hi, here's my script, and I'm the only one who can direct it. It's not how you start out your first meeting. You know, um, um, it's here's the script. Okay, great. It's interesting. Okay, I got something to tell you. I've got to direct it. Uh, first, you get them sold. So, so it, it's you lead with what um, works best. Um, you, you profile the companies, decide who you want to meet with. You write to them in advance. Um, you come in on Saturday, um, and you use resources. We've got a, an online um, catalog of all the companies who are there. It's called the Film Catalog all one word.com, spelled G-U-E. You can get to it from the AFM website as well. There you not only see the companies who are there and their profile and their staff and how to reach their staff, but you see all the films they've been involved with over the years. You can get a sense of their, their projects, what they work on and what they don't. And so just like the salesman producer, you, you don't want to waste your time. Um, you want to go at the companies that are best suited um, um, for your film. Um, for those who've completed films, uh, our suggestion has always been, you know, again, the, the, the goal is to get the meeting. When you have a completed film, the goal is to get the film screened. Um, our suggestion is to put a handful of selected scenes. Never try and cut a consumer trailer. Again, this is, you're, you're not an expert in reaching the consumer. You're not an expert in cutting a B2B trailer either. Um, so don't try. Don't show the sales company or the marketing company how you would market it to the consumer. They mm -hmm. don't need. They don't want to see the marketing campaign. They can figure that out themselves. Or the experts. You want to take selected scenes, the best scenes. They don't have to connect in terms of the story. The best scenes, whether it's visual effects, it's the acting, the skill, the director, whatever that is, and put together uh, three, five, six minutes of selected scenes from the film. Put it on a password protected site, Vimeo or something. And then write to companies three or four weeks in advance and let them know, we finished this film, here's the, here's the, here's the synopsis, here's the key players in it, um, here's four or five scenes. We'd like you to screen the film. We think you'd be the right distributor or sales company for it. Well, their risk now goes way down. You're not asking them to get involved in some script they're trying to sell. Now all they have to do is risk 90 minutes of their time to see the film. Still an investment, but a lot less. And you tease them, again, each step. First, it's the email with the synopsis. Then it's, it's take a look at the four or five or six scenes. Then they've got the scenes, great. Now let's arrange for you to see the film and decide how you're going to do that. If at all possible, get them in a screening room. I don't care if the film is destined for small screens. Get them in a screening room where they're not distracted by the phone ringing in their office or kids screaming at home. Um, you know, when they sell cars at car shows, they still have someone dusting it every two hours. and have the lighting just arranged perfect to show it. You want your film 
to be shown in the best environment possible. And so if you can get them in a screening room, you know, do it. Um, you're really saying to them, you've already spent the money. You're only asking for 90 minutes of their time and they can leave if they want early. Uh, and so if that's not possible, you know, there are obviously other ways to get them to see the film, but you want them to see the film in advance of the market. And you're letting them know I'm coming to the FM and I'm leaving with a deal. I hope it's you. you know, I like you it. Have have, you have to have, you know, self-confidence. You're not out there, uh, um, looking weak. Now, just one other thing, a, a lot of companies will ask, how do I find the right sales agent for my film? Um, um, and there are stories of great relationships and there are stories of not so good relationships. Uh, ours is the easiest industry to check references on. You want to see what an actor has done? Watch their work. You want to know what, how their sales companies work? You can look very quickly. What are the films they've handled? Call the producers. Geez, you know, mm -hmm. when we hire people for anything, we check references. I can't tell you how many times people have taken the first deal offered. Hey, did you check them out? No. Why? Well, the deal was great. But did you check them out? Well, it turns out they're really nice people. They do great, but they're overly optimistic. And so the relationship went bad, not because anybody was dishonest, but they thought they could do more than they actually could because they're just always invested in the film, overly optimistic, and it turns out that that everybody's best hopes didn't come forward. You can check references, just just do that. My favorite answer is no, I didn't check them out because the only deal I got. No, no. That's <laughs> okay. what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, so you know, you mentioned that um, they're sales agents predominantly because AFM is really an international uh, buyer's market, uh, correct? And most of the ones that, are, that, are, that have the rooms, the offices at Lowe's, are international sales agents um, that are speaking with buyers and then the later part of the weeks uh, speaking with um, new producers. Is that accurate? Am I, am I yeah, right? Yeah, let me just re reshape that, that slightly. Um, um, we call them sales companies, sales agents, distributors. There's different words. Distributor and sales agent has a different word for legal purposes, but the fact is they are all there to license films to buyers from around the world. Okay. If you look at Lionsgate, it's a producer. The Weinstein Company, it's it's a producer. If you look at Troma, they're a producer and a sales agent. Um, um, so some companies, um, a, a minority are pure sales agents, meaning they don't produce or invest in films. They only represent third-party films, like someone selling your house. I'm there to sell the film for you, and this is all that I do. The majority, 60 to 90 percent, depending, 60 to 80 percent, the majority are either producing also or investing or packaging, because if they don't do that, they, they won't have film to represent. And the selling process is part of what they do. Um, you know, whether it's I Am Global or Voltage, and there's so many different companies like this that are producing some films, they're a sales agent for other films. You know, if, if you made a film, Lionsgate said, hey, we'll take that film and sell it for you. you you'd jump and say, this is great, Lionsgate's handling my film. They, Lionsgate, by the way, doesn't do that. If they're not producing films, they're, 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 uh, they're not handling third-party film like that, that I know of anyways. Um, and so, so they're all different companies out there, and some are only producing, and some are only sales agents, and the majority are doing some of, of, of each. And yes, when you get later in the market, many are open to 
development and production meetings, but some are not. Um, I'll pick Lionsgate, for example. They will tell you um, our production and acquisitions team are not here at the AFM. It's not, it's not what they're looking for. It's not what, what they do. Then you'll look at other companies where the principal of the company is there meeting with the top buyers and then, you know, interested in taking meetings with producers. But they're not 30-minute meetings. They're 10-minute meetings if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to expect and shouldn't look for more. Here's my three-minute pitch. And if it went beyond the fourth minute, you actually got somewhere. Your goal at the AFM is simply to get the second meeting. Yeah. This comes back to your question earlier on. What are you trying to do? You're not trying to get a check. You're trying to get a second meeting. Back to that funnel. I came in and I had 100 first meetings and I'm going to have 10 second meetings. That's terrific. You don't focus on the 90 second meetings that you didn't get. That that doesn't matter. It's how many second meetings did I get? And those 10 second meetings, hopefully then there's a handful of third meetings and on to finally one deal. Yeah. No, that's 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 spot on. So the the um, focusing on the foreign market, of course, a lot of us indies are hearing about China and what's going on with China. Are you seeing more and more co-productions and the slice of the pie also of acquisitions of, of deals? The foreign market just seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we go on. Yeah, it is and it isn't. Um, um, the international marketplace, the non-U.S. or non-North America, let's say, has always been between 50 and 70 percent, depending on the type of film and 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 where it plays. 60 percent being an average. Um, some markets are becoming more difficult. Um, the growth of event television and high-profile television is moving eyeballs away from from film on TV. Um, and and so it's it's diminishing some of the value of, of syndication. Um, however, we see growth coming out of Asia being led by China, um, and that in some ways is is more filling in the gap for some diminished values in the Western in Western Europe and, and in Latin South America. I mean, what's happened is and and the the big killer of all this. I'm going to get on a soapbox for a moment. Is Netflix. Um, um, there was an episode of the, um, sorry, um, I'll remember, I'm going to pause for a minute on, on the podcast, um, the Twilight Zone. There's an episode of the Twilight Zone where some, some, uh, aliens came, they were eight foot tall aliens, they came to Earth and they cured everything. They created peace, everybody was fed, diseases disappeared. They were just great, and they had this book that was there that they lived by that no one could translate, and people were going to visit their planet to see what it was all about. And at the very end of the episode, someone finally deciphers the book, which was called To Serve Man. They, 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 could, they, could, they could understand the title, but they finally deciphered the book. It was a cookbook. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, well, when, when we look at... China, we have to be careful that the funding that we're getting ultimately isn't um, like that cookbook, where we are getting hooked on that funding. Um, um, and oh, sorry, excuse me, not China. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't mean. Ne- I meant Netflix. Um, Netflix has 
has destroyed a lot of value for independent film. It used to be that you could sell a film into, let's say, Italy, and the buyer knew what the second cycle of syndication, five to 10 years out, what the value of that film was. Hmm. Now with Netflix buying Blu-rays and buying streaming rights on a subscription basis, those values have disappeared. When you look in US at, at networks like TBS and TNT and Lifetime um, and Sci-Fi and others, um, it used to be you'd see a lot of theatrical films and independent films playing five to 10 years after they were made. Um, most of those films are, are being pulled off and all of these all of these networks have got to go into program into producing their own series. Why? Because the value of those films in syndication has been destroyed because now you can dial up anything at any time from Netflix. And that subscription model is killing value. And so I hear about producers saying, oh, isn't this great? I just got a film made at Netflix. Netflix, who will not tell you the results of any film in terms of economics, you are hired. You are an employee, whether you're the producer, the writer, the director, you are strict, strictly an employee. And the day the film is done is the day that your relationship with Netflix ends. You see no statements, you have no back end. Yes, there's Guild residuals for those who are members of Guild, but that's it. We, IFTA, and the, the purpose of the AFM is, is not just to support independent art, it's to support independent commerce and the entrepreneur, and every producer is an entrepreneur. Netflix has come up with a cookbook, um, and Netflix is eating every entrepreneur out there and converting them into employees. Hmm. Employees who are grateful to have that film made, um, but have no business afterwards, have no revenue stream, don't have a shingle, haven't created a production company, they got a fee and they're done and they have no further relationship. We should fear Netflix. Mm. Mm. We should fear Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, I, I can fear see their that. Yeah. No, I can see it. And that visual definitely stayed with me as especially since I saw that Twilight Zone for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and the title of the episode is to serve man. Yeah. To serve man. Brilliant. So with um, what do, what are you seeing with technology you know, besides just Netflix, what are you seeing with technology? How is that changing um, some of our industry? Well, technology historically creates new art forms. Um, um, you can go back to um, the LP, the long play, uh, when they when they actually got were able to slow down a, a vinyl record to 33 RPM. And you can get 20 minutes worth of music on each side, hmm. and so an album became 40 minutes. Um, up until that moment, musicians didn't say, I'm creating 40 minutes worth of work at a time, and that's what I'm going to give to the world. It was the technology that created the LP that said, now music is going to be for, for, almost, for a couple generations. Music was 40 minutes long. That's what it was. Today, we have webisodes, ringtones, um, um, uh, VR. There's so many different directions that, that technology is going that artists are discovering how to use that technology. They're creating new art forms. Um, and I have no idea. There are people much smarter than me that can see into the future and see 
where some of these technologies are going. But when we look at the AFM, the AFM is all about linear storytelling long form. It's about, it's about sitting in front of a screen that you do not interact with and the, that a storyteller is presenting a story to you for at least an hour and a half or two hours. Um, and this is what film is. Our, our view is that form of storytelling will continue. That doesn't mean that other forms of storytelling um, won't, won't drop up. I and mean, look at, you know, it used to be miniseries were rare. Now 10, 12 episode series, they're becoming the norm. Um, um, technology, consumer trends, consumer habits, viewing habits, binge watching, all these different things will continue to evolve. And there will be a place for long form linear storytelling. It's not, it's, it's not a zero sum game. When there's more entertainment, the consumer spends more on entertainment. When there's less, they'll go do other things, whether it's sport or, or, or other activities. And there's, there's room for all of it. Uh, um, but linear storytelling in a communal environment, meaning at a theater, I don't mean at home, has, has been around since the cavemen. Somebody's standing around the fireplace, standing up and telling a story. Mm -hmm. We want to experience things in a communal environment. We all don't want to live alone in a cave in a dark room, staring at a screen with no one with us. Um, you know, comedies and horror, they play much better in audience. We love to laugh together, scream together, cry together. And this ultimately is the great power of film for all of us to be in this room together with the lights on, with a skilled storyteller taking us through this hour and a half um, um, journey. And that, the passion of the filmmaker to do that will continue forever. And the audience desire to experience it will, will always be there. Wow, I mean, there's so many good things, Jonathan, that, that you gave us. I feel like I sat in a master's level class of filmmaking, uh, truly honored, but I want to be mindful of your time. As we kind of wind down, was there anything that I may have missed or that, um, you know, that maybe we should have covered? Um, no, I'm, look, this is a, a broad industry and we yeah. could go on for years. And in terms of the AFM, the role of the producer, um, I just, I come back to the one point of, of uh, the producers are running businesses, build a team, get someone to pitch your film that can really pitch well. Um, don't be the junior salesman that pitches interns, um, understand how the process works and accept the fact that not all art is good, but maintain that passion and keep that passion. Otherwise we won't have anything to see in the theaters. Please tell me you're working on a book. The the information you have, I could tell we could continue to go on with with information. You you're, appreciate that. You're passionate about the industry, with just uh, the excitement just is translated. I'm ready to go out and, and create something or put together my pitch package. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, sir. And I look forward to uh, seeing you at AFM. I'll, I'll make sure I come up and uh, say hello. I hoping that a lot of our film troopers will do the same and get out there to AFM. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, appreciate doing this, and good luck to everybody. Film Trooper, empowering filmmaking entrepreneurs.